Welcome to Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and Candy Reid. Right, Mark Gellard, um, it's the latest edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach. This time you're in beautiful Birmingham. Now, we've been to Nottingham, we've been to Birmingham. How are you enjoying the UK? Hey, Candy. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, so far, yeah, as you said, we've been in two beautiful places in England, Nottingham and Birmingham. Um, tennis results have been so-so for us. So I always think that you judge a city based on how well you did there. It has a big part of it because over the years, Magda won two WTA events. And I can tell you they're my favorite cities now are the Bronx and Joaquin. <laughs> So um yeah it's been um it's been okay uh yeah we 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 we've got the week off next week as we get ready for for Wimbledon so uh, we'll head down to London after they finish the doubles this week I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how the grass is playing because we've had two three weeks of absolutely beautiful sunshine very little rain are the courts playing where the ball is bouncing higher than they have done in previous years yeah, I think that actually the last few years, the courts, the, the, just the way they're playing in general, even Wimbledon's got quite slow and quite high bouncing. Um, Nottingham last week was definitely, a, a, I, I think I can be honest and say that the courts were better in Nottingham than they are here in Birmingham. The length of the grass here is longer, um, but they're playing faster and and lower here in Birmingham than they did in Nottingham. But overall, as a trend over the last five years, I've noticed a massive difference, especially at Wimbledon. The quality of the grass is great, but you hit a kick serve on grass now and it can jump. You can make that ball really kick up and you can use topspin. Whereas in the past, it was almost like you don't want to get the ball up because it's just going to sit to be hit. So um, yeah, in general, the courts have definitely got slower and I think it probably makes it more interesting for people to watch. There's more rallies, there's more excitement, but for players, it's definitely uh, not as it used to be. Is that what the general consensus is when you're in the locker room? Because we know from locker rooms and some people listening won't know about locker rooms, so perhaps you could describe that. But from my experience of uh, player lounges and locker rooms, there's an awful lot of waiting, an awful lot of chatting between the players, um, especially when the rain comes, which fortunately we haven't had. But uh, players discussing the the court surfaces or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I know, like, you know, I talked to Magda and she obviously tells me in the locker room what's going on. Um, you know, I, I, unfortunately, coaches, we don't we don't really get any access to the locker rooms on tour. At the Grand Slams, I'll be honest, I've snuck into the men's locker room once or twice. <laughs> I'm just glad um, you did the men's. That's good. I, well, I was just about to say, I haven't been able to get to the women's yet. But, uh, <laughs> um, um, I wondered why yeah, you had that... Um, that sort of red card in your pocket that one day. Exactly. Exactly. I'm holding that for the right time. But um, <laughs> yeah, we don't. So so we're always stuck out in the lounges watching the TV. But I know Magda has told me that, yeah, in general, that the players feel that the courts are not once you get. I think the biggest difference that we've talked about before with the grass is just the energy you get back from it, because the speed is not. I, I, I think Magda said to me in Charleston on the green clay felt faster off the surface than the courts did in Nottingham last week. Mm. That's so just the incredible, speed isn't it? Is completely different. Yeah, it's changed. And in it's the really um, in the player lounges, are there lots of things to do? For instance, I've just been to Queen's 
and uh, they had uh, a really good darts game. They had PlayStation. Uh, they had table tennis and quite a number of other things that all the players were enjoying. Is that the same way you are? Yeah, in general, the tournament's tried to do a really good job of making sure there's activities. I think in England, it's always more important because it typically does rain a lot. So you spend a lot of time in the lounge. Um, so last week in Nottingham, they had um, they had some arcade games, some PlayStation games, a pool table um, where me and Ian pretty much dominated for that week. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think we're pretty even in there. But then this week... They have arcade games and um, we're still in the double. So we're still spending some time there and, and a dart board. But uh, Mr. Ian Hughes brings his own darts with him. Oh, he's so a professional. He, yeah, he's, he takes it very seriously. I think get pretty intense. I have to say, I once went on a cruise and I'm not a bad table tennis player. And I played in the table tennis competition. And the guy I played in the final brought his own ping pong bat. He had a case for it and everything. It was very impressive. That's always a bit intimidating when that happens. I mean, when I Ian beat him, he went uh, he went home with his tail between his legs and his pink really? pong firmly all in the his gear, case. all the gear and no idea. Exactly right. <laughs> Sometimes that is the case, isn't it? It's like the guy with yeah. the big, big Bertha golf clubs it, and they can't hit the ball more than twenty yards. Exactly. No, he, he Ian takes it pretty serious, and it does get it can get quite intense. So I've had to dial myself down a bit because I'm not a good loser. So you don't want to have fisticuffs in front of uh, all the yeah. I have to kind of hold players. Re refrain myself a bit from losing it. Yeah, that would be embarrassing if you start getting competitive <laughs> over a, a darts game. Um, we've obviously seen Venus Williams back on the grass courts for a few weeks. She played in Bosch. Apparently, the Williams family, including Serena, took a private jet there to the Netherlands. And then she made her way as well to Birmingham. What have you made of her comeback? I mean, she had a great win this week here. She actually hit on the court next to us a few times and I mean, when she wasn't moving much during the practice, but geez, when she's standing in one spot, that ball still goes. She's never going to lose that. I mean, the speed of the ball and the quality. Um, and then she had a really good win in the first round. You're going to have to remind Georgie. me. Of that. She beat Camilla yes. Georgie. Yes, that was a, a, a big hitting match. So they, um, I mean, look, Venus, you don't lose that talent. You don't lose that skill and ability just because maybe you're a bit older than you used to be. But I think the issue with, with for her is that her standards and expectations are are to win tournaments and win slams. Mm. Um, but she can still beat anyone probably on her day, or, or a lot of the players, I should say, on, on her day. Um, but doing it consistently over three sets over two weeks is tough. Do you think it's sort of a role reversal? Because we see a lot of the younger players coming up and everyone's worried about losing to a 16, 17-year-old. And incidentally, Venus lost a, a 17-year-old last week in Bosch, Selena Neff, the young Swiss. But do you think it's a role reversal where actually no one wants to lose to a 43-year-old? A hundred percent. I don't envy uh, Camilla Georgie's draw there at all. I don't think that was a nice match. Because again, I think it's the same situation where it's one that if you win, people say, well, you should win it. And if you lose, people say, how the hell did you lose it? Um, so it's a no, it's a no win. And and I remember several years ago, we were in Hobart and Magda played, uh, it was a pretty poor level match against uh, Svetlana Kuznetsova. And after the match, I, I said, you know, we were talking and I said, I wasn't very happy with how you played today. And she said, yeah, but Mark, you got to, you got to change the way you're speaking there because that's a Grand Slam winner. Mm. And that's the first time I ever beat someone that's won a Grand Slam. So in her mind, that was still a very tough opponent. And she was a tough opponent. I'm not taking anything away. But in her mind, 
she really felt the pressure of that and the expectations, even though, you know, I'm the younger, better ranked player now. So I think that you're not, when you play Venus, you're not playing Venus. You're playing Venus, the legend, the history, <laughs> the grand slams behind her, the all the drama and stuff that comes with it. It's, it's not an easy match. And someone like that has a huge amount of fan support just because everybody knows Venus Williams, don't they? Five-time Wimbledon champ. She was very popular here. I know she did a few of the events for the tournament. She talked on court after about how much she loves coming up to, to Birmingham to play. I think that she has fond memories of, um, of, of of England, obviously, because she did so well at Wimbledon. Years ago, she um, she used to train down in Florida at the club I was working at. So I used to actually hit with her for, for a period of time. Yeah. And I always asked her about England and how you like it. And she never tended to play many warm-up events. And I asked her why, and she said, well there was no point because there is no other tournament that has grass similar to Wimbledon. <laughs> and so there was no point. The best thing to do was to just go to Wimbledon early and practice. That was the only you know, way to get ready for Wimbledon was to be at Wimbledon. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, Stefanos Sitsipas and Paola Badosa, uh, since you mentioned it, are actually practicing at Wimbledon already. That's what I've seen on social media. Is that a good play, given that we're sort of 10 days out still of the third major of the year? Do you, do you see the benefits of that? I def definitely can see the benefits. And like I've talked about in our previous episodes, I think we've made some scheduling or I've made some scheduling issue mistakes. So I think it's about what works for you as a player. I don't know, Paula, is she actually playing Wimbledon? I know she was struggling with a stress fracture, I think. So I don't know if she's even playing. She's been practicing, I believe. That's all. Okay. Uh, that's what I've seen. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I think it depends. I think some players like that feeling of, you know, getting there early, getting the practice in and feeling good with the courts. Others, I find it can actually add to the pressure. It builds expectation. You know, I've been here for so long, I should be doing, I should do really well. Um, you know, for us, when we got to Paris a few weeks ago, we arrived the day before she played because she was in Strasbourg, didn't get there till Friday, had a one-day practice Saturday and played on Sunday. And I don't think that helped us. I think that mm. was probably a disadvantage. Not that I'm saying it affected the outcome of the match, but it definitely wasn't a benefit to us. So I think that was too late. But sometimes we've played tournaments before. A couple of years ago, I think I just mentioned when she won the Bronx on the Saturday. We didn't get back to the hotel till seven, eight o'clock that night. The next morning had to get to Flushing Meadows, which was it stayed in the same hotel, didn't have to travel much. But, you know, you wake up the next morning pretty sort of hungover mentally from the week of emotion. Yeah. And you go on site. You had to get your one hit on those courts because we played Monday morning, you know, second match. So it's 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 tricky. I think you just have to try and roll with the punches. But I think if like we're going to try and get to, to Wimbledon early this week and get some practice there and try and feel good. Uh, somebody who's playing Wimbledon for the last time will be Annette Contevate. We just heard that she's going to retire due to a back condition. Um, what's she done to the game? And are you surprised that uh, she's having to retire at this age? Yeah, I was reading about that. Really sad for her because she's a very nice girl, good player. And I think was it within the last 18 months, she was two in the world, I think. Yes. So went on that she went on that run, um, didn't she? Unbelievable run indoors of how many matches unbeaten. And I mean, just a great player. Beat, beat Magda at US Open a couple of years ago, convincingly. Um, she's a good player, so it's a shame. I think it's a big loss for tennis because she's a nice person, great player. Sad for her, but 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 in a way, I think it's a great decision for her. She's made her money. She's done a lot in the game already. 
Okay, why put your body through this anymore if you can go on and work on and do other things? From what I hear from most tennis players, they always say they just wish that they could go out on their own terms as opposed to an injury or an illness forcing them to do so. Yeah, it's it's a tough one because I always wondered if I was playing and I was, you know, do you want to do it like Pete Sampras did where he wins the tournament and then retires? Or, a year later. Or, or even... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or was it? Did did Bartoli and Henan do that? Were they similar? Yeah, I think they were pretty similar. And then Barty, of course, that was a huge shock. Wins Australia, and then announces her retirement. What two, three weeks later, or something? Because because for me, I'd always be of thinking, well, geez, I just won that tournament. I don't want to stop now. <laughs> I want to keep going. You know, so I don't know if I'd ever stop if I just won. I think for me, I'd. I'd probably wait till I was struggling and feeling like the game had passed me by. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everyone's different, but it's a shame for her. Definitely that she can't, she can't, cause I don't think she was planning on stopping if uh, the pain wasn't there. Yeah, that's, it is a real shame. Um, just going on to the men's uh, tournament. I told you I've been at Queens this week and I actually spoke to Simone Tartarini, the coach of Lorenzo Massetti, who we've, you and I have just been watching actually, he just lost to Holgaruna at Queen's today, having had a good run. But uh, I was speaking to his coach because he had his rackets in hand. And I said, out of interest, what are you stringing your rackets at? And he told me that he was using a full bed of poly and he was stringing at 54 pounds. I think it was 25 kilos or something, 24 and a half kilos. And he said, no matter the circumstances, grass, clay, uh, hard, high altitude, low altitude, humidity, no humidity, it always strings exactly the same because Mazzetti doesn't like to have any question in his mind about the tension in the string. And I wondered how unusual that was. Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting. I'm actually just pulling up now. Uh, uh, I've got a list here from a couple of years ago, players, string tensions, and you get such a range of, mm. of, of you know, I know that, so for example, Serena, she was up in the 60, 62 range. Very tight, um, despite 122 very, mile an hour serve, which is just crazy. It's incredible that you can do that with a string that tight. Um, but then you go down. So so this was from several years ago, posted by the Atlanta Open, where John Milman uh, had his string at 67 pounds. Incredibly tight. And, and does it say go, what string tight? It does. He was using a black coat. So that's a technofiber string um, at 67. But then you go down to Adrian Manorino with a Pavlat <laughs> Pure Drive Alu Power at 11.5 kilos. That's right. He's the lowest. It's like a trampoline. So, so it's such a range. So it's so personal to the player. Um, I think, um, you know, I think one of the interesting things is, is that a lot of players don't always know why they string their tension where they do. Several years ago, I moved Magda's tension down um, without really telling her directly. I just moved it down by about half a kilo every couple of weeks till I got to a tension that I thought was beneficial to her because <laughs> a lot of players, they have the illusion that when they're not confident or when they want to feel more control, well, I go up in tension then. I'm going to go tighter because the physics of it is – is that the ball, the, the the strings won't trampoline the ball back as quick. So the, the idea is that by having it tighter, it hits the, the racket and it doesn't trampoline out of control. However, the ball is then on your strings for a shorter period of time. So if you've got a looser string, the ball kind of hits the strings, gets absorbed, sucked in, 
and then slowly is pushed back out. Mm-hmm. So you gain feel by having a lower tension. So sometimes, you know, people think, well, if I go tighter, I'll have more control. You may have less feeling of control in that way. But on the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have, there isn't as much feel. You don't feel the ball hit the strings. Yeah. So if you're feeling lack of confidence, I actually try to encourage Magda to drop the tension a little bit. But again, it goes against everything that she wants to do. She wants to go up. And interestingly, when we go to Colombia, the a couple of the Colombian players in Bogota that we've spoken to, it's a very high altitude there. Yes. Very high. I can't remember exactly how high. Higher than Madrid, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's a lot higher. They have to use a special ball. And we always tell them, you know, what do you string at? And they always laugh at us. And they say, you foreigners, you come in and you string your rackets tight. And we do the opposite. Ah, we go low. low. We go low because we keep the ball on the strings longer. It gives us more feel. You have to find the right tension, the right range and all that yeah. stuff. But yeah, it's um, that's an interesting one with, with him. But I think one of the things that he's done by doing that, Musetti, is, is reduce the variables. It's the same racket, same string, same tension. Exactly. So he and he has to, to work it. So he has, actually has to add more rotation or less rotation, depending on where he's playing and what he's doing. I know uh, Ash Barty, when when we played her a few times, I would sit, you know, Shelby, the year I was with her, played, I think we played her four times that year. And every time I played, we played her, I was sitting, I remember in Charleston when we played, I was right up there on the court um, next to her. And her string, you could hear it was gut. She was using uh, yes. as a... She was using a hybrid, but it was, it was, I think she was stringing probably no more than 13, 14 kilos. That loose. So she was probably the loosest strung player on the WTA, would you say then? I would have said so, yes. Yeah. Who do you think is now, if you had to guess? That's a tough one, but I'd need to, um, that's a good one. Let me think about that one. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Come back to me. it, It typically tends to be a player that plays with a certain type of, game that uses that and i think you have you do have to have a lot of feel to do it um but i think the rewards are big but um yeah that's you put me on there i'm not sure do you have an idea who would you have thought i'm I'm not sure off the top of my head who i yeah i would find that difficult to to understand because i i would say like on the top of my head i would say non Burr, but she's playing with a wilson pro staff racket so i wouldn't say that she's playing with a loose string with that racket that's just that's just my guess that was, do you know, do you know what? That was the one that I was going to say, but actually I've, I have cheated. I've pulled up the list of top hundred <laughs> players. The one that I've, the, 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 the kind of player that I would envision using a, a looser string would be a Barbara Krejcikova okay. or a Karolina Muchova. Players that tend to be very fluid. They very, um, you Good know, hand great skills. timing, great feel, great mm. hand skills. Exactly. I, that would be the kinds of players I would expect. Next time I see them, I'm going to ask them. Yeah, ask them and, and come back to us. That'd be very interesting. I will, I will do some research and, and, and bring back my information. And I'm hearing that a lot of a lot of players are now using a, a natural gut in the mains, which are the strings that go north to east and then using a poly in the crosses. Is that what you're tending to see? Um. Yes. Yeah, it used to be the opposite. When I was playing, gut used to go in the cross strings, Crosses. which is the east to west, yeah. and then the the poly string we would usually have, or synthetic or whatever you would put in the in the mains. But now it it's it's reversed. Yeah, and a lot of people used to use the synthetic gut for 
Well, the people I know generally do because it's cheaper. It's a lot easier to string as uh, I string a lot of rackets and stringing with natural gut is a real pain. It it's really so is. Difficult. It's not easy. It's not uh, easy. It takes so much longer than a synthetic gut just because of how soft the string is. But you can see the benefits if you can afford it. Uh, it's 100%. It. 100%. And it, of course, the players, they uh, usually have string sponsorship. So are they getting their string free generally? Um. Yes, yes and no. Um, a lot of players are using um, a certain racket brand, but then a different company for their strings. So in that case, they're having to pay for it. Um, but yeah, it's, in general, uh, yes, you would expect that if you're using Babolat rackets, you're getting Babolat bags and equipment and then Babolat string with it. Okay, fair enough. And just finally, final topic, Um we were talking a little bit last week on the pod about the length of the grass court season is five weeks. And you made a very good point that uh, the grass courts don't seem to last much past a week. So it's difficult to find locations to play grass court tournaments on. There is a rumour that there will be an ATP Masters 1000, though, on the grass. Do you think that would be a good idea for the WCA and the ATP? Absolutely. Is that only going to be an ATP or is it WCA? It should as well? be both, shouldn't it? Because uh, apart from Monte Carlo is only ATP, but um, I think all the others are joint. There's okay. probably one on it's, the women's that isn't. It's interesting because we were at dinner last night talking about the schedule. And I said that because this year the WTA has, it's not for me a favorable schedule at the end of the year where they have. The, they have a they have the masters the masters 1000 level events are the biggest and the best prize money points prestige so you have in the summer you have montreal and then you have cincinnati then you have us open then they've got guadalajara which yeah. was also in there last year they've now got the asian swing back so they've added the second 1000 level event which will be in beijing which is the following week so within a week of each other you have 2,000 level events on two different continents. So you're going from Mexico to China. Right. And that just, you, you're already losing a day, right? Because China's ahead of Mexico on the time. Mm. And you're going from a completely different environment there. It is the same surface, but different balls, different environment, different everything that you can really imagine. It's, I find that a little bit difficult for the players. And I don't know, I'm not privy to all of the information on why this has happened. Um, but I think that's a really tough position to put players in. Yeah. Yet we have this period of time from the end of the French Open where there's no thousand level events on the women's side. We go uh, Birmingham, Nottingham, Hertogenbosch, Eastbourne. None of them are a thousand. Eastbourne. Eastbourne's a 500. Eastbourne's a five. Berlin's a five. Everything yes. else is a 250. There yeah. are some 125s in Italy this week. I think Gaida, I, I don't know how to say it exactly. So there's some 125. There's no thousand level events until August, end of June. Is it? Yeah, it must be August time. Montreal is the Montreal. first. Mm. Montreal is the first one. So I don't know why we're jamming in two you know, big events back to back when we have nothing on the grass. Um which for me doesn't make sense. So I definitely think they need to add that that one in. Mm. I'm just mm. I'm just looking now. So August seventh is the next thousand level event. Um, but that means the the last thousand level event we had would have been Rome. Yes. Which was um 
That was back in May. Before Roman Garros. Rome was the 9th of May. So yes. June, July, and then you got three months. Is that right? Am I right with the math? Sounds May about right. Mm-hmm. So three months with nothing. And two majors in between. Levels. Right. And then 2,000 levels with a week between in two different continents. I think that's tough. That is really, really tough. tough. Are um, the 1,000s mandatory? I can't remember how this works. So so yes and no. What they're doing this year, because of this situation with it being so difficult, they're not making it mandatory for the okay. first one in Guadalajara. I believe it's... I th- let me check that. But one of them isn't mandatory, meaning if Which you play Guadalajara, sense. you can choose, right? You don't have to. And the reason that that's been done is there was still a bit of controversy, from what I understand, about whether or not people want to go back to China, if they feel yes. safe with that. Um, I feel completely safe. I lived there for a long time. So did Magda. We, we feel happy with that. Um, but as Magda said to me, yes, it's not mandatory, but in a way, so she won't be fined if she doesn't play it. However, it kind of in a way is a, it is mandatory because a mandatory event works. I think it's 16 tournaments a year count for her ranking. Okay. Okay. The mandatory ones have to be one of the ones in your top 16, along with the Grand Slam. So let's say you've got four Grand Slams. that They, they all have to count. Okay. And so if you get no points in any of those Grand Slams, four of your 16 record a zero automatically. That's just the way it is. Now let's say you left. have five. Right. So now let's say, let's say six of the others are mandatory 1,000-level events. Okay. Okay. And let's say you lose first round in all of those as well. So you have no points for them as well. You can't fill those ones in with really good results in some 500s and 250s. You can't. Those ones will stay zeros and you'll have to get all your other good points in the other tournaments. So by her not playing Guadalajara, although she won't be fined for it, if she doesn't play Guadalajara the following week gets to Asia to play in in Beijing, Mm -hmm. she will record a zero. That can't be replaced with another tournament where she picked up 70 points. For example, that's very difficult, isn't it? And is it uh, for the mandatory ones? Is it top thirty-two, top twenty? Is it everyone who gets in automatically? It's everybody who gets into main draw at the time of the entry deadline. All right. So in the extended ones, we've seen the expanded Madrid and Rome have been longer, one hundred twenty-eight draw. So everybody who's in the top, say 120, because there's always wild card, special rankings, qualifying. So let's say 110. If you're in the top 110 in the world rankings, it's mandatory for you to play. Yes. If it's a mandatory in, one. <laughs> in, in, the, in the main draw, yes. Okay. Qualies, qualies, I would have to double check. I don't believe qualies is mandatory. Okay. But I will do some confirming. This is where we need Magda here. I'm going to get her <laughs> on here because she knows this stuff far better than I do. Um, and I'm a little bit lazy when I don't have an answer. I'll just email the WTA. And there's so many rules. It's it's incredible. I mean, we were watching a match yesterday, and I can't remember who was playing on the grass, but they bounced their racket uh, on the grass very lightly, and they got a code violation. I said that was a little bit harsh from the referee mm. to give a code violation from that. And Magda corrected me and said, no, it's a very clear rule on grass. If your racket touches the playing surface, it's an immediate code violation. Doesn't matter how hard, how intense. It's not 
discretionary like it is on other surfaces. That rule, though, has not been enforced as far as I've seen. Really? (laughs) It's, yeah. I understand the reasoning behind it. Um, Yes, uh, the natural surface. And the players are warned by the umpire at the net that it is a natural surface and not to touch it. But it uh, it hasn't been particularly consistent if that person is getting a, a warning. Yeah, then that's it. Should be applied across the board because they are warned at, at the pre-match with the, at the net with the referee, and they're told before the match goes onto the court that there will be a, a code violation given for anything that touches the court like that. So, yeah, the rules are very you know subjective, but um, yeah, she's very good at all of that. So I will check, double check that. But it yeah. isn't it isn't easy for players with all the tournaments trying to man- manage all of this. They really have to know everything, and it, I help. Uh, I suppose it helps with Magda being on the players' council. She probably knows perhaps too much. I think. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> she's been on that for a couple of years now. That all those girls do a great job. Um, kind of a help, uh, a, help a thankless job because um, mm. they don't really get. Nobody ever talks about all the good things they do and get done and the work that they put in. They just get reminded of all the bad things that they didn't. The other players didn't like. The the, the one thing that's interesting as a coach as well that's and magda said as well is as a, in the player community is it's disappointing how when you have a group of coaches or a group of players like she's in charge of that ranking 51 to 100 and she'll write group emails the lack of response mm-hmm. from those players and then they you know but then the players want to complain at the tournament that we don't get this or we don't get that yeah but you could have done something about it if you'd answered that email yeah. the seven times i sent it to you I think um, that's human nature. The coaches. Yeah, it's the same in the coaches. So it's it's not easy because I think people are quite they, they, they people are only concerned about things when it directly affects them in right. the moment. Otherwise, and when it's negative, really... if it's positive, then they're happy, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah, it's a tough old life. Well, well done to Magda for stepping up because someone has to. It's like being on a committee, isn't it? Uh, no one exactly. really wants to do it, but we need people to to take those roles. Exactly. Yeah, they all do a good job. All right, Mark, we'll uh, we'll keep it at there. And next time we talk to you, will be just before Wimbledon, we hope. So have a nice week off. Uh, we hope that Magda and Bernarda continue to do well in the Birmingham doubles. So far, they're in the semi-finals as we speak. So uh, perhaps the title is on the cards and we'll find out a week or so from now. So thanks once again, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Candy. Thanks, everyone, for listening.